So, if you've been uh, following along online or here in person for uh, at least five weeks, we've been in the book of James, and each uh, Sunday I bring out a tool that uh, someone has lent me or uh, maybe even from our own toolbox and try to work that into a sermon. So it's been kind of fun, and uh, Lupe gave me uh, this. I'll bring it out in just a second. Hang on. I've got, got to build up the... How many of you either own one of your own or your children had one of those red Viewmasters? Had a little round disc, you know, put them in there. And so this is the great grandmother. I mean, it is. And, and Lupe's not here. So you'll have to ask her, is she in the nursery working today? You'll have to ask her. She either said this was her mother's or grandmother's. Do you know which <laughs> well, she had, she had taped it together. It was missing a screw. Well, it's actually missing a couple screws. It's missing a, a few parts. Um, it was uh, created in, uh, well, actually the, the man who made it, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, who was a physician, a poet, and an inventor. And... Uh, most of you, if you're in San Antonio, know Holmes High School. That's named after his son, who is a Civil War veteran. He joined the Civil, he joined the, the Union Army, much to his dad's disappointment, wounded at least three times, and then went to law school and became uh, one of the Supreme Court justices. But uh, Holmes Sr. invented these in the 1850s, actually refused a patent in the 1860s. Uh, his actually had leather, but this is probably, you can tell her, that, by my little research, is probably turn of the century. It's probably 1890 to 1910, somewhere in that range. You can see that it had leather at one time. His first ones had the entire piece that went up to your eyes was leather. And the missing pieces are there would be a divider right here that keeps your eyes separated. And then at some point, you had what was called, this, this entire device is called a stereoscope. What it looked at were stereographs. Okay, and there are two pictures exactly alike, but taken at a slightly different angle. So when you looked at it with this very simple device of these glasses and the position, this glass and the position of the picture, it made it into a 3D effect, much like what the viewmasters do, a little easier and in color that we have these days. So I'd love to tell you it's worth a million dollars, probably not. I looked on eBay, they were anywhere from probably 40 to 140, so, uh, but very cool thing to have because it, it got me thinking about the word stereo in stereoscope and then stereograph, and then we talk about maybe even stereotypes, or then we talk about, uh, and we can go to that right now. Most of you know what a stereotype is, right? We have them. We hold them, sadly. But here's the definition. It's actually a French word. Uh, that first part is stereotype. It's a solid, I look in the back, if those of you who turn around. Um, it is a, uh, a piece that was used for printing. It was a solid piece that had the letters that you could imprint something on. So that's what a stereotype is, a plate cast for printing services. Or it is something conforming to a fixed or general pattern. That's probably where we get a little bit of our stereotype. We see things and we make quick, split-second decisions that this person or this item is always going to be a particular way. 
Um, much like if you've ever bitten into a truly different color apple, the outside, you expect the inside to be white and you bite it, you're stereotyping the apple, you're expecting the inside of it to be white and maybe you've had uh, a fruit like that. But I wanted us also to highlight the idea of the verb. A stereotype, to, to use it as a verb, is to repeat without variation. That hopefully will come back some point in the sermon. Because today we see in the book of James, James tells us not to look at others with stereotypes. He tells us to take all the different angles in. In fact, the word stereotype can also be translated three-dimensional. Those pictures went from flat to 3D. So James is telling us to look at each other with different angles, not judging on outward appearances. Believers, he says, should not show favoritism, should not display prejudice, should not stereotype people. Because in doing so, we tarnish the glory of the Savior. He'll use the word glory in just a few seconds. I'll read that for you in that first verse of chapter 2. We are all too familiar with stereotypes, so we pray that with a faith that works, it will break and make stereotypes. Test the validity of your faith today. That's our kind of catchphrase that we use in this a faith that works. And let's look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Third time he said, my brothers. Each time he starts off with my brothers, he's going to get ready and probably give a little bit of a <clears throat> sharp saying to them, if you will. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Some translations, uh, King James, does it, say, does it say synagogue in that verse, in your meeting? Does it say the word synagogue? I try to remember each of the different, that actually is the word for synagogue. Um, and if a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, so you've got a guy coming in with a gold ring, fine clothes, and then a poor man showing up in shabby clothes, he comes in, and if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and says, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated against your, among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? King James, I think, says actually, uh, take a position underneath my footstool. That's, that's pretty crazy. How can you get underneath a footstool without being held down by it? Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised the, those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong. Let me ask you to pray with me. Our Father, as we consider the way we treat others today and how we all have stereotypes that sometimes dictate our actions, I think we could all admit that there are 
bad stereotypes and good stereotypes. As Christians, we'd like to be stereotyped that we love one another. But sadly, sometimes that's a bad stereotype because we don't. We'd like to think that we're forgiving. We'd like to think that we treat others like we would want to be treated. So today, Lord, as we consider a faith that works, help us to break the bad stereotypes and make good stereotypes. Speak to our hearts in this hour, for I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this text begins with um, the third of the My Dear Brothers. As you recall, those of you who said in the intro sermons to this uh, book of James, this is a book written primarily to Christians. So he is instructing Christians on how to treat one another. And just recalling authorship of it again, we have agreed, or most commentators, theologians would say that this is written by James, the brother of Jesus. So he has seen what it is to treat other people with love and grace, and that's the way his brother treated one another. And we also know that James was a book that many people didn't want included in the Bible because it, it doesn't say Jesus enough or it doesn't expound on the gospel good news enough. It doesn't talk about salvation a lot. But if you'll look with me, please, this very first book or this very first verse does something that most New Testament epistles or the gospels do not carry. He says, my brethren, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, glorious, he uses the word doxe. The Greek word for glory. That's in verse 1. Glory. Praise. Adoration. It's the way that God is referred to in the Old Testament. And only here in James do we see one of the writers identifying Jesus with the same glory that the father of the Old Testament, that Yahweh of the Old Testament was recognized with glory. So I think it's really pretty exciting to say that James saw the glory in his brother as he lived with him and saw what he did. And he's saying to us, why would you show favoritism to anyone when you have the glory of Jesus to show favoritism to? Elevate the glory of God because when you elevate others, you have tarnished or diminished the glory of that is extended to Jesus. Side note, I asked Brenda this morning, I was going over my notes, I told you I did that last week, and I yelled at her, and she told me to stop. So I didn't yell at her this morning, but I said, do you remember sitting in a worship service in England? We, are, we had renovated the chapel, we had moved to the upper floor of the annex at REF Lakenheath, and we were packing it out every week. And this particular service, I'm thinking it was a Christmas Eve service, I wasn't leading it, because she said, you never sat with me in church. I said, well, I, I'm pretty sure I was sitting right beside you, and there was a young couple sitting in front of us, and there was a bulletin and they were reading all the different things that were going to happen. And eventually, he reads the word doxology. That's that word glory, you know. And, and ology, which is the Greek word for word. He said, well, I don't know what it means, but ologies are the study of something. Like biology is the study of, you know, life. He said, so doxology must be the study of ducks. <laughs> yeah, oh well. It, she didn't laugh at it either. Well, in the context of the glory of God, he says, don't play favorites. 
Don't play favorites to anything but him. And then he moves to an example. Some commentators, some theologians say that this is a, just an example. It's, it's hypothetical. But if you look at verse 6 where he t- says that you have actually offended or you have, you have uh, insulted the poor, it sounds like it's a real event. So I, I'm going to talk about that in j- just a little bit. But let me look at verses 2 through 4 with you very quickly. And I just lost my glasses. Suppose a man comes to you, comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So it's at this point I think we can begin to break bad stereotypes. So that's our first point. Break bad stereotypes. Texans are often stereotyped. We all wear cowboy hats. I don't own one. I owned one when I lived in Illinois. And I was five. Then I bought one in seminary because I went to school in Fort Worth. Cowtown. So during the week of the rodeo, we all wore cowboy boots and hats. So I had to buy boots and a hat. I lost that hat. We all wear boots. We all wear hats. We all drive pickup trucks. Somebody say amen. Amen. Yeah. We all either have trucks or we ride horses. Yeah. Ouch. We all listen to country music. We all either worship Jesus or the cowboys. We're all ultra conservative. And we're all ready to succeed the union given the chance. So by listening to those, some of you might agree to say to me that there may be at times some truth in a stereotype. Hang with me. How about Christian stereotypes? We are all closed-minded. We're judgmental. We're hypocrites. We don't like to have fun. We think we're perfect. We all are Republicans. We're all Bible thumpers. We're all out to convert the world, and you must dress the part. Granted, I did not wear a coat and tie today, so I'm obviously not an authorized Baptist preacher. But Brendan and I went to a funeral this week. Uh, A dear friend passed away, and uh, we got to Fort Worth in time to have breakfast. I know you just got back. Good to see you guys. Pray everything went well. Um, And we're sitting, you know, with the glass between everybody, how they are in the booths now. And there are these three well-dressed men sitting right beside me, or I mean, across the glass. I told Brenda, I said, they're either preachers, bankers, or crooks. Or all three, I'm not really sure. But you, you do know that sometimes people feel like you've got to dress a certain way. You have to hold yourself a certain way. There are Christian stereotypes. James says that we need to break the stereotypes of playing favorites. Literally, the word is receiving the face or lifting up the face that is translated 
playing favorites or favoritism. I had a um, master sergeant that we used to travel together to do inspections, African-American. And uh, when we walked down the, the sidewalk on the base, every once in a while we would pass another African-American enlisted person, which of course had to salute me, but he didn't have, you know, this master sergeant with me didn't have to salute, and each other they kind of did this head nod. And I said, I, I do the head nod too when I'm not in uniform. He goes, what do you mean? I said, you know, I walk by, see somebody, it's kind of an acknowledgement. I'm not going to whoop you. You're not going to whoop me. I'm not going to hurt you. You know, hey, how you doing? That's what this is kind of an illustration of. The rich person comes in, you go, oh, hey, come on down. Sit in the front row. Well, you're Baptist, so we'll give you the back row. So I'm, I'm thinking today, only the wealthy people are on the back row. So I want you to know, the choice seat in a Baptist church is the back row. You get too close, you're liable to get slobbered on or picked on. James says, the poor guy walks in, and you give him no heads up. You give him no acknowledgement. In fact, if anything, you look away. You give him no seat. You tell him to stand over there. And with irony, as I said earlier, you say, get underneath my footstool. Let me put my foot on top of you. The world has already put you down. Let me keep you down when you come into worship. Because you don't dress the part. You don't smell the part. You don't look the part. You can break bad stereotypes when you stop judging people. Stop judging people. As I said earlier, some commentators believe that this was an actual event of unchristian-like behavior in the church. Because it's easy to say that it has happened from the beginning of the church until 2021. My other dentist is not here. He's not here. He's watching online, I'm sure, today. He would uh, love the fact that I love to use Methodist illustrations. But in the 1730s, Charles Wesley was asked by um, George Whitfield to do an outdoor worship service near the city of Bristol for coal miners because the coal miners were not able to come into the Church of England sanctuaries. They were dirty. They smelled. They were poor. And John Wesley preached to a gigantic crowd. And his writings talks about the fact that these men started crying. And on their cold, dirty faces, the tear marks were coming down, washing away the coal dust. And he would go on and help try to... He was a, a Church of England priest, but he tried to reform the Church of England. And it became then the Methodist Church. So that's like 1730, 1740. And about 100 years later, <clears throat> another man, a Methodist pastor this time, William Booth, tried to bring the poor people that he was working with and, and dealing with to his church, and he was asked to leave because they smelled funny. They didn't look the part. They didn't, well, people didn't want to be around them. So Booth would go on and find, found the Salvation Army. And you know the Salvation Army story and its global impact. So that's happening in about 1845, 1850. Our own denomination in 1845 split over the fact that 
there were slaveholders who were selected to be missionaries. And the Northern American Baptists could not stand for that. Thus the Southern Baptist Convention started. And from that despicable heritage and history, it took us until 1995 to ever make a public apology at a Southern Baptist Convention. That what turned into be one of the most diverse congregations or denominations, we have churches of every ethnic group you can imagine, every language almost possible, and we have missionaries around the world, but we came from a very sad time. And then, as we continued to evolve, our, our struggles, I can remember, in the 80s were on theology, on inerrancy of Scripture. Even then, on the placement of women in a pulpit or not. And in these more modern times, we've come back to racial problems as black or white theology is discussed within the SBC and some black prominent black, black pastors have left our denomination. Some prominent female speakers have left our denomination because of feeling suppressed or cast aside because of their gender. And we continue to struggle with clergy misconduct. We must stop judging, start, start loving, and start forgiving. John Burke is the pastor, I think he's John Burke Sr., at uh, Gateway Church in Austin. And uh, I only know it via the internet. But uh, a few years ago, he wrote a piece about how judging is like our number one pastime as Americans. We all like to judge. So what he decided to do is try to keep a log of how many times he judged somebody or something during the week. He said, I began by judging the way my children kept their rooms. And granted, there's a difference in, you know, corrective behavior and with a child that you didn't clean your room when you asked them to clean your room. But you just started judging them. And he said, I even judged the dog's breath. <laughs> yeah. But then he and I, I want to write this or share you with exactly what he wrote. He said, I watched the news and condemned those idiotic people who do such things. I watched reality TV full of people that I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, and childish. I get into my car and I drive and I find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And I throw in a little condemnation on our own Department of Public Safety for good measure. At the store, I complained to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking at or looking for, all the while being tortured by Muzak. Who picks that music anyway? I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long, because, look people, it says 10 items or less, and one counts more than three in your basket. What's wrong with you people? And why can't that teenage checker what is she wearing? Focus and work so we can get out of here. Judging is our favorite pastime. If we're honest, but we're not. We'll claim we're not judging. We're great at judging the world around us. We're just not so good at looking at ourselves. 
and we resent being judged by others. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light than others. Stop judging is what James is saying. Second, make good stereotypes. Make good stereotypes. There once was a seminarian, not me, who decided to cut out every reference in his Bible where he saw poor or the idea of poverty being talked about. Do you know how many times poor is mentioned or the poor people are mentioned in our Old and New Testament? Over 2,000 times. I only have a 1,000-page Bible. I would cut half of the Bible away if you extracted all the times that God, most especially if you look at Jesus' ministry, and I think that's why it's so easy to say that James saw what his brother did. He had compassion on the poor. He fed the hungry. He, he dined with those who were not society's elite. Oh, he could move in both arenas, but he focused his ministry on those who were cast aside. And so often our churches are focused on what others might bring into it. So James says in verse 5 through 7, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Go back to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7 of Matthew. But you have insulted the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? In other words, a poor person is not taking you to court. It's, aren't they not the ones who are dragging you into court, the rich people? Aren't they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? He wonders, why would you show favoritism to anyone other than Jesus? And if you are following Jesus, look at the favoritism or at least the concern, the heads up he gave to the poor. When Jesus watched the widow come in to give her offering, Mark 12, she gave a million dollars, right? No. Two, they call it the widow's mites. You can buy the widow's mites on eBay as well. I don't know if they're really true, but you know, or real accurate or authentic, but you, the little pieces of, of coinage that she had, she gave. And what did he say she gave? She gave all she had. Right? However, we look not at the poor with favorable eyes. We look at the wealthy. You love to see me pull up in a Ferrari. If I was visiting the church, I pulled up in a Ferrari with like five Rolexes up one arm and, you know, rings on every finger and, I don't know, maybe, what do you call that, uh, Armani suit, yeah, one of those really, you know, really expensive shoes. I was looking at some shoes at the BX at Randolph uh, a few months ago, and I told this guy, it was an African-American guy standing beside me, and he was a sharp-dressed man. There's no doubt about that. He was shopping. He looked sharp. You know, I go shopping. I got the worst stuff I got on because, you know, I'm, I'm needing to buy something, and my shoes are already wore out. That's why I'm looking at the shoes, and he's standing beside me, and I said, I've never even heard of those. He goes, oh. I said, I've heard of Florsham. You know, they made Florsham shoes where I grew up in my little hometown. There was a Florsham shoe factory. He goes, oh, they're good shoes. But, and I can't even remember the name of them. He goes, these are very expensive shoes. And I have three pairs. I'm thinking, God bless you. Where do you go to church? I didn't. But. <laughs> you know, even at our cars and coffee, I thought about it. I mentioned Ferraris, and that's where the mind goes. It is interesting to see 
how much money different people have spent on their cars. You know, some of them, you can see they got more money in their wheels than some of you have paid for your car. And, but I intentionally try to go by and speak to everybody, whether, whether they're polishing a Ferrari or it's the group of uh, cop cars that are on the far end that some of them look like they've literally just come out of service, you know, working as a, a patrol crow, a car, a Crown Victoria, because they kind of hang out in their own little group. There, there are a... Uh, cars and coffee within a cars and coffee. And that's what happens in church. We become churches within a church if we don't welcome and accept everyone. So how do you start making good stereotypes? By treating everyone who comes to church, who walks by your house, who enters your business, who you pass on the street with the love of Christ. See each one as a child of God. So we can apply that here in our own church. Consider how excited you get when a young family comes in here and has three or four kids. Oh, man, we'd like to get them here. Brenda and I used to go to base chapels, and they wouldn't know I'm a chaplain yet. We got four kids. Oh, a family of six. Oh, let's keep them. That'd be great to have them join. Well, you get excited about that. Do you get excited for the single senior citizen who walks in? Think of the wealth of Christian experience, if they're a believer, that they could bring to the congregation. When you see gray hair, do you go, oh, another old guy. We've got to keep this church young. When you see a divorcee, do you say, oh, well, you know, wish he or she wasn't, I don't know. No, treat each other with love. As a child of God, Jesus was capable of looking at the person and not seeing the outer garments, but seeing the inner heart. Treat them all with love. Love them as yourself. Forgive them as you have been forgiven. There's a story, or a, it's a book actually. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about 15 years ago called Blink. And what he's talking about, in fact, I, I watched the, the YouTube video of the book. That's a new one for me. I've never done that. I used to read Cliff Notes. <laughs> My name's Cliff. <laughs> yeah, that's how I got through college, Cliff Notes. But... I watched a video of the book, which is pretty cool. And I did not kick the bucket. I kicked the candy jar. There's no candy in the candy jar. We need to change that, yeah. Um, but he, he wrote this book called Blink that we do things when we see people in a blink of an eye. And he talked about with psychology, with science, uh, with proven, he gave illustrations of how when you see certain things, the mind kicks in on one side and processes with the other side, and you make a decision in a moment about a person. Christians should make that decision in a moment to say, this is a child of God, someone that Christ came and died for, and just like you, is in need of the love of Jesus. How we treat others will form the stereotypes of First Baptist Church of Lotus. Since I've been here, people have come and visited, and somebody told me once, well, I always heard this was a white church only. I said, oh, white people? That's me. And some have come and said, I didn't know you had uh, Hispanic people here. I said, man, we've got a church that speaks Spanish over there if you want to speak Spanish only. One hard lock that I've never been able to find the key. I know that there are African Americans who live in our community. But seldom. And I know people have told me, uh, Wade probably told me, you, we had an African American deacon here years ago. And I think he was actually here in the late 90s when I was here. And then I think their daughter got active in another church because of high school years or whatever and they moved. But we, 
We want to be a welcoming church. Now, at the same time, when a person comes of color comes in, you don't go, hey, man, glad you're here. Come, you know, and, and, and overwhelm them to the point that they are turned away. But yet, we should never say to somebody, oh, well, you know, we only let certain kinds at our church. We welcome all kinds. I hadn't even planned on saying this, but I, I'm just thinking how the church has been successful at times. Dan and Pierce will know this, that we had... Um, a same-sex couple coming for several weeks. When I was doing the, the Ten Commandments series, I did a series on the Ten Commandments, and there was a couple who was coming and, and bringing their child to our Sunday school program. And to my knowledge, everyone always greeted them uh, with respect and with love. And uh, I, I am not condoning the lifestyle, but I am saying that you need to be open to whoever comes in the doors and let God work on their hearts. You know, that stereotype of being the Bible thumper, don't hit them over the head with the Bible. Introduce them to the Jesus that you know and let God work on their hearts. So, as we get ready to close out, I just want to play this video. I told Dan, I said, you know, sometimes I play videos that <clears throat> I just like. doesn't work with the sermon that well. I just liked it. But it, it does because this one, as I watched it and, and as I can kind of talk it through, it challenged me because I have stereotypes in my mind. My boys have told me about different people who make money on YouTube and they make so much money on YouTube that they're, they're, they're kids. They, they probably hadn't gone to college. You know, I go, oh, that, we stereotype with education. I could go on a whole list of things that we do. And they watch these things. Like, they're making millions of dollars. I'm thinking, and how did they do that? And if they do, what's the motivation behind it? Well, you'll find that this group has a motivation that I never knew. I'd seen one of their videos because one of my boys had sent them one, and then I did some more research on them this week. So let's play this, it's about three minutes long. Whoa. Oh, no. <laughs> All right, here we go. For me, making that shot was a minor miracle. But for the YouTubers you're about to meet, they've built a multi-million dollar empire out of making that perfect shot. From making shots out of the Goodyear blimp. Well, if this isn't on your bucket list, it should be. To flying with the Blue Angels. And making unique food choices. I'm Tori and I eat dog food like cereal. The five friends known as Dude Perfect are the second highest paid YouTube stars on the planet, earning some $20 million last year. I thought it was a one and done, let's just make the trick shot. Former Texas A&M roommates posted their first trick shot in 2009. Upload it, see what people think, laugh about it and move on. And then it just caught fire. And the rest is history. Racking up more than 51 million subscribers and nearly 11 billion views. Oh, ah, 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 ah. We found out the hard way. It might not even. It might not even fit through the hoop. <laughs> that it's not so easy. Okay. You're gonna pull a muscle. <laughs> <laughs> and even the dudes aren't always perfect. Oh, Ooh, cheese balls. Love those. <laughs> it's not just trick shots. They've also perfected game shows. Helicopter battles. And they've taken on stereotypes. All right, guys, good call. See you next week. Hey, hi, can I 
like those first months of COVID-19 lockdown. Rick, we know you're not in space, guys. The driving force behind these dudes might come as a surprise. If we lost everything tomorrow, it doesn't matter. We know that the most important thing we have is Jesus. And they're in the business of giving back. It all comes down to this. This moment will echo in eternity. Granting some two dozen wishes for Make-A-Wish Foundation kids in less than four years. Once you see these kids and what they're going through, knowing that you have the ability to bring them just some small amount of hope is such an easy lift for us. It's such a no-brainer. Making pit stops on their first live tour across the country to visit kids with cancer. taking a detour to bring the tour bus to Meyer. Found it, noggin, see ya! A six-year-old fan diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, Lord, we just pray for Meyer, and we're really grateful for the chance to hang out with him and his family, and uh, we thank you for his parents and for Macy. <clears throat> and uh, we're just really grateful to be friends with him now, and we pray that we would get to see him um, the next time we're in town. Um, we love you so much, and we thank you, Jesus, for uh, for Meyer. You know me pray. Amen. These YouTube dudes don't exactly wear their Christian faith on their sleeve, but if you look closely, you'll see it's embedded into almost everything they do. Gabe Lamonica, CBN News. Wow. So if we go back to that very first definition in the verb usage of stereotype, it means to repeat without variation. So will you be cast into the model of Christ is the question I ask for you to this morning. That you will love all equally, that you will serve all equally, that you will reach out to everyone equally because everyone should get the best seat in the house. Well, there's only so much of the back row to go around. But everyone, you got to come early for that. Everyone has value, meaning, and everyone can be a child of God. God is calling. Maybe he's calling you. Stand with me, please, we pray. Our Father, we're all your children, but not all of us have come back unto you because we've been separated by sin, and sin leads to death and eternal separation from you. So in this moment, if there's someone who's never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you, right now, through the Holy Spirit, Lord, would empower them to move and step forward to say, I'll never stereotype the old way. I'll make new stereotypes of loving everyone that I come encounter with because of the love that I have received from Jesus Christ. So Lord, whatever decision there is to be made, maybe someone wants to come to these altar, these steps and just say, I need to leave it here at the foot of the cross. We lay everything down, Lord. And we pray that we would love as we have been loved. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen.